0: section six of seven roman statesmen of the later republic by charles oman this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela Nagami. chapter four from the gracchi to sulla b c 121 to eighty eight part one gaius gracchus was a striking example of the truth of the melancholy adage that the evil that men do lives after them the good is oft interred with their bones for among all the many measures that he brought before the roman people precisely those which were evil in their tendencies survived him while those wherein lay the seeds of good were thrust aside and ignored for another generation the corn dole which he had invented proved so popular that the victorious optimates dared not meddle with it it remained as a permanent curse pauperising and demoralising the city multitude and ruining what was left of italian agriculture the new equestrian jury courts sold justice so shamelessly for the next thirty years that men began at last to talk of the period when the senators had been judges as the good old times the asiatic tithe farming went on and gradually ruined that fine province besides provoking therein such a virulent hatred of rome that as we have already pointed out when the asiatics got their first chance of revolt in the days of king mithridates they rose like one man and massacred eighty thousand roman citizens in a single day but the two really valuable remedies for the ills of the state which gracchus had advocated were thrust aside if not forgotten transmarine colonization was stopped and the new settlement at carthage was destroyed the italians were commanded to give up all idea of obtaining the franchise indeed special care was taken to close the various avenues by which individuals had hitherto found it possible to slip into the citizen body as to the agrarian law which tiberius had framed and gaius had reenacted the senate did not formally repeal it nor did they give back the confiscated land to the possessores they simply removed one by one the graken checks on the economic tendency of the times and allow the new farmers to die out by slow extinction livius drusus it will be remembered had made the graken allotments alienable and abolished the ground rent due from them even before gaius fell in b c 119 a law was passed which dissolved the land commission so that no further distribution could be made it also provided that such domain land as still remained in the hands of the original possessores should be secured to them on condition of their paying a small rent which was to be employed in subsidising the ever-growing needs of the corndole lastly in b c one eleven a third law was passed which removed this rent and made the land into the freehold private property of the occupiers the moment that they got the opportunity of alienating their farms under the law of drusus the holders began to dispose of them agriculture did not and could not pay political economy exerted its iron law and the allotments were sold for what they would fetch to the nearest capitalist the latifundia once more commenced to grow and the decrease in the number of small landowners is marked from b c 118 onward by the regular shrinkage of the census returns by the end of the century it is probable that the whole effect of the gracchan redistribution of land had passed away only a few years later it was said doubtless with gross exaggeration that the larger part of the land of roman italy was in the hands of no more than two thousand proprietors meanwhile it must be remembered that the senate never thoroughly recovered that undisputed control of all the machinery of the state which it had possessed in the old days before the appearance of the Gracchi. it never dared to strike at the equestrian order which remained as a permanent check on its omnipotence even when the abuse of the law courts by the knights had grown into a perfect scandal The Senate refused to commit itself to an attack upon such a powerful body of enemies. Apparently, the leading optimates lived in a state of constant apprehension that a new gracchus might at any moment arise to dispute their authority, and wished to do no more than to avoid friction and hang on to the emoluments of power. They managed by a policy of short-sighted opportunism to maintain their ascendancy from year to year, till at last after a considerable interval, the democratic party again found leaders and a program and civic strife recommenced. From the death of Gaius Gracchus in B.C. 121 down to the appearance of Marius on the political stage in B.C. 106, the democratic program lay dormant. The history of the time turns mainly on questions of foreign policy, and it was by their incompetent management of those questions that the optimates finally gave their adversaries a chance of raising their heads. It was not an age of peace. All through these years the people were muttering and murmuring. Occasionally there were riots, or an unpopular magistrate was impeached, or a law backed by the Senate was rejected by the comitia. but there was no continuous agitation for any definite political end, nor did any leader succeed in rallying the democratic faction for a new attack on the Senate as the constitution then stood a single omnipotent leader provided with the tribunate or some other important magistracy was needed to galvanise the sovereign people into activity it could only put forth its strength if guided by an autocratic chief using the one-man power which a democracy really loves and the chief was long in coming meanwhile the main thread of the annals of rome consists of the history of two long foreign wars both grossly mismanaged by the Senate at home and by the incapable oligarchs who were sent out to bear rule in the provinces. These were the lingering Jugurthine Troubles, BC one hundred seventeen to one hundred five, and the dangerous Cimbrian War BC one thirteen to one hundred one. It is unfortunate that while we possess an elaborate, if not altogether trustworthy, narrative of the African affair in Sallust's Jugurtha, the story of the far more important Cimbrian campaigns has to be gathered from imperfect notes in Plutarch, Appian, and the epitome of Livy. It was in consequence of the Jugurthine War that the Democrats first began to raise their heads again. The facts of the Senate's maladministration were sufficiently disgraceful. The King of a not very powerful subject state had broken all his treaties, slain off the cousins whom the Senate had made his colleagues, and done whatever he pleased in africa without paying the least attention to the commands of the suzerain power when embassies of remonstrance were sent him he had merely quieted the envoys by judicious bribes combined with lavish promises of submission he carried on this shameless policy for five years from 117 b c to 112 and might have persisted even longer in it if he had not let the savage break out in him at an inauspicious moment when he crushed his last surviving cousin by the capture of sirta in b c 112 he massacred not only the numidian garrison but a great number of roman and italian residents in the place this atrocity so much aroused the anger of the roman people that the senate was forced to declare war on jugurtha it was abominably mismanaged of the two imbecile generals to whom the subjection of numidia was first entrusted One granted the king terms of peace, which the indignant people refused to ratify, the second so misconducted himself that his army was scattered, beaten, and sent under the yoke. These disasters roused a tempest of wrath at Rome. Public opinion was so strongly excited that under a temporary leader, one Mamilius Limitanus, the people created a court of high commission, which raged against the prominent members of the Optimate Ring, Sent into exile the two incompetent generals, Bestia and Albinus, and revenged an old grudge by packing off after them Opimius, the consul who in B.C. 121 had put down Gracchus and his friends with such cruel zeal. But in spite of this outburst, the Senate was not yet deprived of the control of foreign affairs, and was allowed to send forth against Jugurtha its best fighting man, Quintus Caecilius Metullus, B.C. 109. The new general was fairly successful but he did not work quickly enough to please the angry critics of the forum he took most of jugurtha's fortresses but the king fled into the atlas and the sahara and maintained a desperate guerrilla warfare which seemed likely to linger on forever the people were perhaps unjustly dissatisfied they did not understand as we understand only too well in this year of grace 1902 The difficulties of hunting down elusive bands of marauding light horse it was at this moment that there at last appeared a serious candidate for the headship of the democratic party gaius marius was a man of a very different type from his predecessors in that post he was a rude soldier who had risen from the ranks by his hard head and undaunted courage he had none of the literary polish and philosophic training or the lofty eloquence of the two gracchi as a politician he can only be described as a blatant demagogue he had not the brains or the imagination to sketch out a political programme he was no more than a discontented and ambitious veteran with a personal grievance his simple method of achieving notoriety was to declaim to the multitude concerning the very real abuses of the senatorial government And to promise to set all to rights if he were made consul. He most unjustly blamed Metullus for the protraction of the war and promised to end everything in a year if only he were placed in office. He had been provoked by the aristocratic hauteur and quiet insolence of the proconsul and was thinking quite as much of revenging personal slights to himself as of giving the democratic party an opportunity of seizing the reins of power. The vulgar self assertion and coarse invective of Marius did not disgust the multitude. He was duly elected and straightway went over to Africa to supersede Metullus. The province was not assigned to him by the Senate. In spite of their opposition, he had a bill passed in the assembly which gave him charge of the Numidian war. But though he took large reinforcements with him, legions raised on a new system by volunteers from the lower orders of the city. He was not at first much more successful than his predecessor. He scoured the whole countryside with movable columns, but he could not catch the evasive Jugurtha. His reputation might have been wrecked if chance had not come to his aid. His quaestor, Lucius Cornelius Sulla, at last succeeded in capturing the Numidian king not by force of arms but by treachery. He bribed Jugurtha's Moorish allies to seize and surrender their guest. The king was kidnapped and made over to Marius, and then the war came suddenly to an end, B.C. 105. Marius had redeemed his promise to put an end to the Numidian struggle, though the method in which it closed was neither glorious nor dignified. But he had saved his reputation and was able to celebrate a triumph, and to pose before his supporters as a successful general. At the moment of his return he had the state at his mercy, for the Senate was cowed and the people would have been ready to grant anything he asked. Moreover, he had legions at his back. The democracy for the first time was armed with sword and shield, and did not depend on the stones and staves of riotous mobs. If external troubles had not intervened, there must have been a political explosion of some sort in bc 105-104. It might very possibly have ended in the installation of Marius as temporary ruler of Rome. But neither he nor the Senate had the leisure to turn their attention to domestic politics. For the first time since the fall of Hannibal, a serious danger from without was impending over Italy, the year bc 105 witnessed the most dreadful disaster to the roman arms with the possible exception of cannae that ever occurred in the days of the republic for the last eight years there had been unrest along the northern frontier of the empire both in the balkan peninsula and in the alpine lands all the unknown barbarism of central europe was on the move tribe was thrusting upon tribe and the outer waves of the seething whirlpool of nations were washing against the borders of the provinces of macedonia and Narbonese gaul at first the troubles were not serious the attention of rome was distracted to the jugurthine war and little attention was paid to the raids of the celts or germans but things gradually grew worse several small roman armies were cut to pieces There were mishaps of some importance in 113, 109, and 107. At last, the situation grew so threatening that the Senate dispatched two large armies, a dozen legions of raw recruits, to defend the frontiers of Gaul. For the originators of all the stress and turmoil, the great mass of migratory bands, whom we vaguely know under the name of Cimbri and Teutons, had thrust aside the lesser tribes and were marching against italy itself an awful disaster ensued the two incapable quarrelsome generals Malius and caipio found the invaders on the lower rhone and attacked them with foolhardy confidence they did not even combine their forces though their camps were less than a day's march apart caipio in disobedience to the orders of his superior attacked the enemy's camp in the morning he was defeated and his legions annihilated. In the afternoon, the Germans threw themselves upon Malius, slew him, and cut to pieces the whole of the Second Roman Army. Eighty thousand men fell in the two battles of arausio October 6, 105. Not a cohort remained to guard the passes of the Alps. The only hope of Rome was in the army which Marius was bringing from Africa if the barbarians had marched at once for turin or genoa it is hard to say what they might not have accomplished but they lingered long in the valley of the rhone and then to the surprise of all men drifted away toward the pyrenees instead of crossing the alps thus rome was given the chance of reorganising the defence of her frontiers and marius instead of practising demagogy in the forum hurried northward with his troops to interpose between the barbarians and the gates of Italy. The Cimbrian War, contrary to all expectation, was protracted for five summers from B.C. 105 to 101, and Marius re-elected year after year to the consulship, was kept perpetually in the field, watching for the moment when the enemy should at last make up their minds to deliver their great stroke. It was not till they had wandered far and wide in Spain and Gaul, spreading devastation around them that the barbarians turned back at last to the true objective and marched in two vast columns against italy the teutons by the nearer route through provence the cimbri by the longer sweep that leads through southern germany by the brenner pass and the line of the adige down to verona marius now showed that at least his reputation as a soldier had not been exaggerated we must not linger over the details of his two great victories in one o two he warred down the Teutons in a long-running fight among the hills of Provence, which ended with their complete destruction at the Battle of Aquae Sextii. in the following spring. He crossed the Alps into Italy to meet the Cimbri who had at last completed their long circular march and had descended into the plains of the Po at Verkele. He annihilated them with a slaughter as great as that of his Teutonic victory in the preceding year. The disaster of Mallius and Caipio was revenged, and Rome was safe from the northern invader for another five hundred years. End of section six.